Welcome to the Stories of Change podcast. I'm Tom, a social worker, frontline fellow, and your podcast host. In the podcast, you'll hear from a series of social work and sector experts who are creating positive change for children and families. My chat with Lisa was an excellent series opener as she gave us a wonderful overview of social work, the values, the principles, and the core work that social workers carry out up and down the country. With her 26 years of experience in a variety of roles, she recounted many stories from her work that have both inspired her and solidified her commitment to creating change for some of the most vulnerable in society. I really enjoyed talking to her and I hope you enjoy listening. Hello everyone and welcome to this, the uh, first episode of the fourth series of Stories of Change. I'm very excited to be hosting this series and I hope we'll have some fascinating, inspiring and perhaps some challenging conversations about social work and how we can all keep working towards creating positive outcomes for some of the most vulnerable in society. Joining me today is my first guest, Lisa Hackett who is a qualified social worker and adult mental health practitioner who's worked in the field of social work for 26 years, working in a a number of different roles, including residential childcare, youth offending, women's aid, and university settings as well. Since October 2016, she's been employed by Frontline, firstly as a head of region, and then also as a delivery director. Lisa describes herself as being passionate about improving access and services through collaboration, education, and system change. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think there'll be some really interesting things about her social work career and some of the learning from that. So Lisa, hello. Thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be here and uh, what a lovely introduction you've just given to me. It's making me feel quite old though. Is it a bit surreal hearing 26 years? Is that? Yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is. So, um, but yeah, it's good to have longevity in social work and and the affiliated professions. So, Mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure that's something we will talk about because I think that is a that's a big theme in social work, isn't it? About how people kind of continue through what is quite a tough profession, and and you know, actually, in my experience, we don't hear or see a lot of people who have worked for 26 years in in the same same field. Is it full of full of happy memories, mixed memories? What's the what's the reflections on 26 years of social work? Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's generally full of. I would say like privileged memories for me. I think that, you know, the times when you're working with with families and for me with adults, uh, particularly in mental health crisis and having that opportunity to enter their lives at sort of critical points and points of, of distress and anxiety and worry and pain and loss. For me, that's just such a privilege. And I think it's really important that we we understand that privilege and we we hold it close to heart and we consider it as a privilege. So in, in, in the monks of that, lots of happy memories as, as well um, and lo- lots of, of very difficult times. I'm sure, yeah, privilege, I think is a really important word. I often think of it as responsibility as well, but that can sometimes have quite different connotations can't it you know it's quite a heavy word responsibility you feel quite yeah like their lives are in your hands but I think yeah reframing it as a privilege you know allow people allowing you into their lives I think is a really special thing in social work so yes yeah, you're obviously a social worker for that long you're now the chief social worker at Frontline and we'll come on to that in a, in a little while but I guess I was curious and I'm, I'm sure the listeners are curious as, as to why you became a social worker in the first place what what was the reasoning behind that? 
Well, I think I think social work found me um, in lots of ways, Tom, and definitely was shaped by my formative experiences. So um, I was adopted. I was adopted in the 70s. I was adopted with my twin brother. And I think it, it helps you to understand that, you know, outcomes for for people, for children and families are often really defined at the crudest point by by luck by circumstance kind of the family in which you're born into the resources that that family have and the impact that that can have on one one's life and one's outcome and there's no doubt that that my circumstances would have been you know wholly different to what what they are now had I not been adopted and I think that 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 shapes who you are, it shapes how you see the world, and it helps you to understand that there's there's very little that there's very little distance between us and the the children and families that we work with. Often it, it's it's luck, it's a decision, it's it's an opportunity, it's a circumstance, and and that's how I try and try and think very much about social work. So that's always been a motivating factor for me. Mm, that, that's a really strong idea that you know we are all one sort of step away aren't we from a very different life whether it's bad luck bad decisions what whatever it is you know we are one step away from something very different and and that's why you then felt okay social work this this career this path would be suited to me that you want to maybe help those who are you know have struggled or had different circumstances yeah i mean i went to university and i did a, a degree as it was called then in women's studies and that gave me a really great understanding in terms of uh issues that specifically pertain to women but also more broadly around equality around diversity in how society operates and is set up and the impacts of kind of structural racism for example and I had great exposure to lots of of great academics and introduced to lots of authors um, of African-American heritage and and their readings that you know I spent a lot of time going through them and I think that that sort of really shaped me in terms of thinking social work is my next step so always was very motivated by kind of social work social justice and I think finishing that that degree really made me think where can I put some energies into into doing good and making a change and making a difference and yeah I ended up securing a job in a children's home when I finished university, I had uh, spent six months working as a youth worker or associate youth worker, assistant youth worker, and then got a job in a children's home. And that was probably one of my, I think most, even now, some of the memories from working in that children's home continues to shape me and how I see social work. But it was very very challenging it was very different to what I thought it would be you know this is kind of 1994-95 and I think doing that for a period of time um, I did a full year made me think about getting qualified and uh, the need to have have a bit more difference have a bit more skill in in the profession Mm. was something that I, I wanted to do I wanted to kind of understand more in a way that that perhaps wasn't always being good practice wasn't always present in the children's home I was there for three and a half years in total whilst I did my master's in social work right yeah I'm sure many listeners who maybe aren't social workers have ideas of what a children's home is like could you tell us a bit more about what 
what that children's home experience was like for you. You know, how old were the children? What were they in there for? What was what did your work entail? The children were generally ranged between 11 and 16. It was a mixed uh, children's home and they were there because for various reasons, actually, usually linked to to, um, loss, to parental mental ill health, for example, uh, to abuse as well. And and often, sadly, due to being perceived as uh, unfosterable. So lots of them had been in foster placements, various foster placements, and that hadn't worked out. So they were living in in the care of the local authorities, children's home and residential social workers provided wraparound care for them, including kind of waking nights, as we'd call them. So night shifts and attended to their their kind of basic needs, helped with their routines, getting involved with education, uh, linked with their youth offending workers if they had one. And, yeah, tried to exercise some some kind of love some some parenting and you know doing that in a large home setting a large group home that can take up to sort of 14 young people was was quite a challenge yeah absolutely and and dealing with the dynamics of all of those those young people in in one place I know from experience that can be that can be quite challenging. I think when those young people have very particular and acute needs themselves, sometimes that can collide, unfortunately, with the needs of you know other young people in there that are, are complex as well, and that takes up the focus and the energy from from the workers, from the staff there, who maybe don't have all the resource behind them, don't have all the time. But it's it's quite a quite a unique setting for a lot of learning. And I'm kind of really seeing this this sort of journey that you've kind of been on of your own being adopted and your understanding around that, going into your studies and, and thinking more of the kind of the theory and the, the kind of the literature and research behind social work and then just putting it into practice, really. That's quite that's quite the journey to say, what, what do you think that's given you? What did that give you as a social worker, those kind of moments in your life? What, what did they all give you? I'd hope, but I guess better asking that question to the people that I work with and the children and families that I've worked with but I hope it gives me a level of authenticity in terms of my relationships with them I hope that it would allow me to make some connections with their their lived experience and not necessarily by sharing mine but by being able to empathize and understand some of some of the challenges that that they've had and and in addition to that, I think that the, the sort of learning, the academic learning helps you understand things better and um, in a way that's the lens through which you see things once you've been exposed to different, you know, types of academia and, and theories through social work enables you to see that situations are, are seldom clear cut, that, that mm. you know, that they're complicated. And I think that's when it became difficult for me to continue working in the children's home because once your learning moves on, it's then hard to work in a place where that learning's been quite static. I mean, intrinsically, even as a young person, sort of 22, there were some practices and behaviours that, that didn't sit right with me that I felt really uncomfortable with. But the sort of language and the short of saying that that's that's not appropriate, there wasn't other things that you could use 
there wasn't a different type of language. And I'll give you a specific example of that. I worked with a lot of young women, some who were only 13, who would routinely be brought back by the police. And the the police would refer to them as prostitutes. And that was unchallenged by the team at the time. Now, that's not a criticism because language changes, our understanding develops. And this was 26 years ago. But the impact of hearing that about a 13 year old was it's like a it's, you know, your heart feels like it's going to come out of your chest for them because mm. they're children. You look at them and they're just they're just young girls. And I think that there wasn't there wasn't different language at that time necessarily that helped people understand it differently. And that became a narrative in the children's home about them. That was really difficult. What do you think, though, is the main the main driver behind that change? Because I know throughout what we've talked about so far, you kind of mentioned, you know, the time when you adopted it's the 70s, working in a children's home in the 90s. Now, you know, we're in the 2020s and things are different. What, what's the main driver of that change? Do you think it is that focus on academic conversation and, and trying to challenge each other? Or, or is it just a, a natural change as people move on and, and start to understand things differently? All those things, Tom, I think, you know, with with learning. So research brings with it learning and then you've got to disseminate that learning in a way that people can interact with it and grapple with it and understand and present different ideas and and explain the harms that certain practices and and ways of working, how they harm children and young people and or they don't benefit the profession. And I think that's that's an iterative process. There's things that, you know, things much more recently that, you know, we're still learning about the impact of language. And, you know, for example, things like lack, and I know that's not generally used now, but looked after children, it should, we should never get into that complacency where we we use that kind of language. They're they're always children first. Mm. So, and they're always children who should be looked after. I think, you know, the the thing that I can't bear, and I know it's a shorthand, is when people refer to sin. And, you know, I know it's abbreviation of child in need, but to use the word sin when you're talking about a child, it makes, it it just makes no sense to me why we would get into that shorthand I don't understand it I've I've always found that the, the sin one particularly uncomfortable just because of how it sounds I understand I think some local authorities try to push for CIN but yeah acronyms and language especially in social work is, is a huge topic I mean the one that I always think about is, is describing contact contact between a child and a, a parent who they may not be living with that you know you're having contact it feels like sort of almost visiting in prison or something you know it'd be more suited for that or having I don't know physical contact for a very short time you know I know some local authorities are looking for other ways to describe that such as family time things a little bit more appropriate a bit more normal a bit more I guess understandable for a child really Um, and it kind of makes the child I imagine well I hope it would make the child feel less sort of institutionalized really by describing it as contact just describe it as family time because that's that's what it is isn't it yeah absolutely and I think that's a great example isn't it we would never talk about I'm going to have contact with my mum today <laughs> no if, if I was going to visit my mum I there's just no way so yeah I like the idea of family time much better yeah I think it's, it's definitely open for um debate and discussion about what it should be called instead but I think yeah I think you're absolutely right it's about you know always thinking about how would you want to have been talked about as a young person as a, as a child because I think that's all that's you know a key debate in, in social care at the minute is how we you know treat or um, look after looked after children in in the care system compared to how we may look after our own children or how we were looked after 
are there any particular stories or, or moments that really stick out to you and kind of solidify your belief or your mission as a social worker that this is this is the job for you and this is why you you want to keep going yeah i mean i think ironically some of that comes through my work as an adult mental health practitioner and sort of understanding the power that social workers hold and that can be in relation to um, children, but also adults, particularly in terms of mental health crisis. And, you know, there's no the only the only time you can get locked up in this country against your will is usually if you've committed a crime. Now, you might not have committed it, but if the courts decide that you have, you go to go to prison. And that's except when you're considered mentally unwell, then, you know, we have got legislation that allows us to detain someone under the Mental Health Act. And I think that that's a power as a social worker that you cannot overestimate the impact of doing that and what that means for someone's liberty. And I've had lots of conversations with psychiatrists and police officers around their use of section 136 and psychiatrists who were not willing to consider alternative options or felt that we were at that point of needing to section and I think that being able to be confident about our own professional authority and what we know as as social workers and what we think is right for an adult and a child and family is really important. And I've been fortunate to be able to engage in in some quite heated conversations sometime with, with psychiatrists around my position on not being willing to make an application for a section two or a section three. And yeah, there's been some, some really nice success stories in that and some, some really challenging moments as well. They're quite incredible debates to be having aren't they I mean there's there's a lot at stake there but I can really tell from from talking to you that you have like quite core values and principles that you you really do stick to and kind of understand your desire around creating system change you know when you talked about training police officers with in in terms of domestic violence challenging psychiatrists who really do hold that expert position but I guess you are there as an adult mental health practitioner to make those risk assessments and talk about safety so your position is is valid as well but I think it's it's really key to kind of keep in mind the vulnerability of these people and, yeah. and the, the power that the state does have. Moving on onto big roles you're now the chief social worker at Frontline which is a new role. What does that title mean and what will you be doing in that role? So it's a very exciting role. I guess it means I am tasked with being the senior social worker in the organisation and with making sure that great social work practice, great social work education and good outcomes for children and families always remains our highest context and making sure that that's kind of dispersed across the organisation, not just in the teams delivering the frontline programme, but across all our different programmes and across how we think as an organisation, how we make sure that we keep children and families front and centre. And with that, I guess, comes a responsibility for talking about social work externally for engaging with other organizations higher education institutes around social work and being collaborative so they're the kind of things that I'm doing internally and externally I'm really looking forward to some collaboration to you know linking up with with some of the great people in the sector who are doing some great work and and sharing that and trying to get some traction going with it 
I think this is where I sort of really wonder about how to make changes and press changes is this lack of awareness, isn't it, that, about what social workers actually entail. I know from my experience of becoming a social worker, friends, family, most of them, if they haven't had any experience or know anyone in care, are kind of in awe about what we do, what the profession in, entails. What do you see as the biggest boundary or biggest barrier, rather, for the narrative of social work kind of getting out there, the story of social work get, getting out there into the public domain? What's the biggest barrier to that. I think there are tensions in, in the public perception of social work that probably make the social work community as a group a bit reluctant to perhaps talk a lot about what they do. We're not always welcomed in, in the wider media circles. Our narrative in those circles isn't always good. I think that's something that we need to think about. And I also think that social work as a profession, and this might not necessarily be a very popular view, but I don't think that we've kind of grappled very well with promoting what we do. And partly that is because it involves working with people who are often some of the least, the littlest, the last in society, the most marginalised. Mm. And, and therefore, there can be a bit of a tension about talking about that and how opinions of those families might be developed or shaped. And I think that can be something. What would the message be with I am a social worker? And if everybody spoke about that and spoke about the value and 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 I think the benefits that social work brings, not just to children and families, because otherwise there's a danger of kind of pathologizing a particular group of people of needing help and support. But, you know, we flourish when we're all getting access to good things. It benefits no one in society when, when some people are on the periphery or the edge of it. So, you know, for me, social work brings lots of benefits to me personally. It shaped my own family. And I think that that's something to talk about, you know, that's something to share. So it doesn't have to just be from an angle of what social workers do to, quote, help people. Yeah, that sharing of the values and the principles that I think we all hold so core, it can become part of how you just act in your kind of your day to day life as well. But I think that's that's really important to be able to share that. And maybe if that can be seen in the wider narrative within the media and other realms, other, other organisations, then perhaps there could be a bit of a shift in, in how change is delivered. And I guess this leads on to maybe the last question as a closer, because you've talked about sharing those values, sort of shape and change the narrative. What advice or what would you say to someone who's starting off in the job as a newly qualified social worker or a social work student. And what would you also say to social work leaders? What would be your advice to those who are actually the heads of service, the director of children's services or other adult services? I would say, I think the messages apply across the board. There's probably some certain different things I might ask of leaders, but I think I would say to social workers and those training to be social workers that Being a social worker isn't a right. It's not something that you get just because you want it. It's something that requires integrity, authenticity, genuineness. It requires you to be able to make decisions, to write great reports, to engage with research and theory and evidence. It's a tough gig and it's not just a right. And sometimes it's not for everybody. I think I'd also say listen. Listen with your, not just your ears, but your eyes, probably more than you talk. Perhaps something I'm less good at but I I definitely think that's something I try and tell myself particularly when I hear myself talking a lot and I think 
I'd say to all social workers, you know, that very little separates you from the communities in which we're, we're, we're often working with and to just hold on to that. Because once you start to see them as different, you start to other them. And that's a really difficult narrative to get out of. And it is often resources, circumstances, discrimination, you know, systemic racism, other types of discrimination, poverty, those are the things that push people into situations where they find it very difficult to cope. And that can happen to anyone. It really can. To social work leaders, I'd say, again, listen, but lead leaders like Show us innovation, show us the passion, show us that you still know what connects us to the communities in which we serve. My experience as a leader is if you can get your team alongside you, if you can get them connected to you, like together you can pretty much do anything. So leaders, listen, lead, make sure you stay connected, be innovative and take your teams with you, get to know them, you know, um, because as as a collective, we're unstoppable, really. And it's, yeah, having that hope that and that belief, that faith that change is possible, isn't it? And Absolutely. and I think it's quite easy in this job, unfortunately, to get caught up in the feeling that it's not, but it is. Thank you very much, Lisa. I think as a first episode to this series, I think you've given us a really wonderful overview of social work from all different sorts of angles. And I think it's really clear about the values and the principles that fashion holds dear and that we need to keep reminding ourselves of and not get bogged down too much in the, you know, some of the crises or really tough parts of the job. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom.